My dad was a banker, which meant that Monday through Friday he donned a suit and tie, and when 5 o'clock rolled around, at about 5.07 p.m., he would roll in the house, the suit and tie would come off, and all he would be wearing is a white T-shirt and the oldest pair of jeans that I've ever seen in my life. My mom all the time was concerned that he would actually leave the house and run an errand wearing these jeans that had a giant hole in the crotch, a giant hole in the back, and then big holes in both knees. Michael, she would say, I'm going to throw those jeans away. Don't you touch my jeans. And sometimes he would hide them because if he was leaving on a trip just to make sure they were there when he came home. When, when I was really young, my dad had awesomely cool cars. He had a, a Fiat convertible. Oh, what an amazing little car. You know, I always thought of it as like a James Bond car, even though it really wasn't, because it was a convertible, and it was a beautiful car. He had a four-door cherry red Thunderbird with suicide doors for the back doors. Now, when I got to elementary school, the only kinds of cars my dad had were um, rusted-out Fords and Chevy sedans. I think childhood must have extracted a financial cost. <laughs> That's my guess, is because the, the nice cars went away and they didn't come back till Brent and I were long gone <laughs> out of the house. Um, once, once in elementary school, um, we had driven uh, to a, a, we grew up in, I grew up in Indiana. And Indiana, if you're familiar with it, outside of Indianapolis at night, it's dark and flat because there's nothing but corn and cornfields. And one night, uh, uh, we were out visiting, uh, I think, my uncle and aunt, and so we were coming back home, and this was a late summer night. The sun had already set, and my dad decided to pull off on the side of the road. He pulls off. That's what all the cars sounded like back then. Turned off the ignition, and then he kind of stretched out and put his, put his arm along the bench seat front, and he said, Boys, have I ever told you, told you the story about old man Kravitz? Oh, old man who? Old man Kravitz. Old man Kravitz. See, I, I grew up here in this county, which is where we were pulled over on the side of the road. Did I mention it's completely dark and silent? He says, you know, there was this guy in World War II that had his hand blown off. And uh, instead of a hand, he would have a hook that he would attach to the end of his arm. And this, this man hated young couples that would park on the side of the road and make out. And he would, he would go after them to kill them. And dad, you know, by this point, you know, my brother and I are like, Dad, start the car. Dad, Dad, start the car. We need to go. Dad. And he laid this story out in great detail about this one couple that had parked. And they were, oh, I love you, I love you more. And, and they didn't know that he was creeping along the side of the car. And finally, the girl was like, stop it, stop it. We need to go home. You need to get me home. And apparently they were kissing too much. And so the guy starts the car and drives home. And when he goes to open the door, there in the door handle hanging, is the hook. You know, my brother and I like, Dad, Dad, please start the car driving. So, okay, I was scarred emotionally. <laughs> that one story. Um, 
When I was a teenager, my dad decided it was going to be a good idea to make a sales call. So in addition to being a banker, there was a season in which he sold fire alarms on the side. I know, it's the craziest thing. So, so uh, he was going to go make a sales call in the town where my grandmother lived, which was 20 miles away from where we lived. And I remember he was like, hey, hey, Mark Brent, you want to go visit your grandmother? I'll take you over to Gas City. I gotta make, I'm going to do a, a sales thing, um, you know, hop in the car and let's go, go visit grandma. I think it was just to, to get us out of the house and out of mom's hair. I think that's what that was, looking back. But my mom was like, Michael, it's going to snow. You need to cancel that appointment. You need to stay home. Oh, we'll be fine, Sherry. We'll be fine. Off we go. Boom. And I remember at grandmother's house, you know, we were talking, doing stuff, and, and my grandmother goes, oh, look at the snow. <laughs> and it's not just coming down. It's like somebody's, you know, you know, it's going like this, piling up quickly. So by the time my dad gets there, I mean, there's like four or five inches. I mean, it, it was a massive snow out of nowhere snow. So we're going home, trying to go home. This is Indiana Highway 26 between Gas City and Indiana, uh, Hartford City, Indiana, and there are just ruts in the road, okay? So we were driving along, driving along, barely see, and then the traffic stops, and we discover that two semis have met face-to-face, and there's no more going. We're seven miles from Hartford City. So the guy behind us is somebody my dad knew who was the admissions director at Taylor University. Apparently this was during Christmas break. And he goes, hey, Mike, that's my dad's name, follow me. If we can get back to campus, I've got keys and we'll have a warm place to stay. <laughs> so sure enough, you know, the two of us turn around and we go all the way to Taylor University. My brother and I lived there three days until the roads had gotten plowed. <laughs> For us to get home the first thing out of my mother's mouth when we walked in the door Michael I told you it was gonna snow <laughs> I told you now okay those are stories about my dad and and my dad was a mixed bag like any dad is and and it's probably you're thinking of your own dad right now and for some of you this mostly good stuff, mostly good memories, because your dad showered you with love. He told you, I love you on a regular basis. Um, you got approval and acceptance from your dad. Um, your dad participated. I mean, he would show up to things that you did. Maybe not everything, but he was there, and, and he was available. And uh, for some of you, uh, your dad also had a, a belief. He stated belief. I believe you can do this. I believe you can do that. I believe in you, son. I believe in you, honey. And, and that was good stuff. And you were like, yes. And some of you, right, did not get those things. And the very fact that your church is talking about the Father of God at Christmas, you're like, thanks a lot. You know, I spent two years in counseling, and I'm barely over it. And you're going to just take lemon juice and go, squeeze. Thank you. Because, Right? Let's be honest, there are some abusive dads out there, dads who did things that dads should never do and, and said, don't tell anyone about this. When you were a kid, you thought it was all you. You thought there was something wrong with you. And then you grow up and you're like, oh, dad, you suck. Um, then there's the absent dads, the dads who weren't there. Some of you, your dad died when you were 10, when you were six, and you just didn't have one. Some of you, your dad up and left. Some of you, your dad was physically in the home, 
but was always behind the newspaper or in front of the TV, and you would, Dad, Dad, look! Glance, glance back. And that was it. Um, for some of you, it, you, you had a dad who was totally engaged and involved, but he was performance dad. In other words, did you get all A's? Let me see your report card. What is this B minus here? Or the dad along the sidelines, hey, hustle, hustle, I told you to get the ball. You know, and you were like, ah! you know, some of you now are like, I didn't know you could yell like that. I'm a dad. <laughs> all dads can yell. It's called the dad voice. <laughs> Why would I talk about dads at Christmas? Two reasons. One, you're thinking about it already. The ho- come on. The holidays in America are like a giant spotlight on family. All the good stuff, all the dysfunctional stuff from Thanksgiving on, it's just like this giant spotlight. And you're like, oh, yeah, oh, yeah. And, you know, it's just there, okay? So you're thinking about it anyway. And the second reason is that This little baby that was born 2,000 years ago wasn't just any baby. That baby was God's son. And that baby grew up and became a man and showed us and gave us the clearest picture of the kind of dad that God is. And what better season to talk about the Father of God than Christmas. We're going to be in the Gospel of Luke today. And we're going to be in Luke chapter 15. So if you brought a Bible, you can already crack it open and and get there. And that's the passage I'm going to be teaching from today. Luke chapter 15, verses 11 and following. So Jesus is a man in uh, in this gospel account. And he's already had a teaching ministry for a while. And he's gotten in trouble. He's gotten in trouble because the first two verses of 15 spell it out tax collectors and other notorious sinners often came to Jesus to hear him teach. This made the Pharisees and teachers of religious law complain that he was associating with such sinful people. It gets worse, even eating with them. Now, The Pharisees were the God squad of the day. There's a God squad in every generation. The God squad has the mindset of, here are the rules, we keep the rules, and and we live the way that God wants people to live. (sighs) We've got it together. Some of you don't have it together. The Lord should kick you in the butt. The Holy Spirit should just give you that giant unk so that you can live the way that we're living because we've got it all figured out. And the God squad always has this mindset. There's a class of people that just are bad. You don't hang out with them. In Kentucky, let's be honest, it's the meth-making trailer trash, right? You would tell your kids, don't, don't be playing with them, meth makers, <laughs> okay? In Jesus' day, there was actually a class of people because of the jobs that they had or because of their moral behavior, and they ended up in the category of sinners. And sinners were people that you just kept as far away from as you, as you could. Jesus, however, didn't roll that way. Sinners flocked to hear him teach. And worse, he would go into their homes and have dinner with them. He would attend their parties. The God Squad totally freaked out over this. (gasps) Don't you know whose house that is, Jesus? How can you? Jesus, what are you doing, Rabbi? And so the complaints. This is the only time that Jesus fires off one, two, three stories to correct the God squad. We know that Jesus told stories all the time to make a point, 
this is the only time in the Bible that he goes, boom, 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 because he really wants to correct this erroneous assumption that you have to be a certain way in order for God to hang out with you in a sense, okay? So let's get into verse 11. To illustrate the point further, Jesus told them this story. A man had two sons. The younger son told his father, I want my share of your estate now before you die. So his father agreed to divide his wealth between his sons. So the younger son is anxious to get out on his own, right? Because woven into this younger son's assumption is, if I can just get out from dad, I'll be better off. And he boldly asks for his inheritance, and dad agrees to give it to him. Despite the fact that this would have been scandalous in the first century, let me ask you a, a question and see if you can get this. When Jesus tells stories, sometimes certain people in stories represent certain spiritual things and, and, you know, people in life. So in this story, if there's a father who had two sons, who do you think the father is in this story? It's God. God is the father in this story. I think this is one of the most erroneous things Bible scholars do. In my Bible, it says the parable of the lost son. It really should be the parable of the father because this story is all about the father, all right? So let's pick up and see what this son does, all right? And you probably know it. Verse 13 and following. A few days later, this younger son packed all his belongings and moved to a distant land, and there he wasted all his money in wild living. You got to wonder. I'm pretty sure that when that happened, the father in the story was not like, what? I never saw that coming. How on earth? You know, I can't believe he went to Vegas. He went to Vegas. (sighs) No. It's kind of like, yeah, he's, you know, cliff ahead, (laughs) cliff ahead. So about the time, verse 14, his money ran out, a great famine swept over the land, and he began to starve. So he blows through all of his inheritance, and then he's got nothing, and then there's a famine. So where does he end up? He persuaded a local farmer to hire him, And the man sent him into his fields to feed the pigs. The young man became so hungry that even the pods he was feeding the pigs looked good to him. But no one gave him anything. That's a telling thing to me. No one gave him anything. None of his friends and relatives came to his rescue, offered him some bucks. In everybody's mindset, it was a, you got what's coming to you, young man thought you could just move out under dad, thought dad was the big bad meanie, thought you'd do better on your own. How's that working out for you, young man? Nobody helped him. He's getting his just desserts. Here's here's a little aside. Rebellion against your father always leads to misery, whether it's here or in the hereafter. Rebelling against God, your father, always will always will take you to the feeding trough of pigs. Whether it's now or later, you always end up there, okay? So this young man, however, has a moment, right? A a, a revelatory moment, and that's verse 17. When he finally came to his senses, he said to himself, at home, even the hired servants have food enough to spare, and here I am dying of hunger. I'll go to my home 
I'll go home to my father and say, Father, I've sinned against both heaven and you, and I'm no longer worthy of being called your son. Please take me on as a hired servant. Now, this young man understands something. I'm no longer worthy of being called your son, okay? There's several things going on in this little passage, this revelation that he has. One, he can't just go home and pick up where he left off. He's really rebelled. He's done something pretty egregious against his, against his dad. And in his mind, he's realized, you know what? Even if I were just a servant in my dad's house, I'd be better off than I am here. I'd be better off than anywhere. I'm going to go home. I have sinned against heaven and you. There's, notice what this doesn't say. Hey, Dad, thanks for ruining my life. Hey, Dad, you know, if you had just been a little bit more stern when I was a young one, I wouldn't have been needing to sow my wild oats. How come you didn't set appropriate boundaries? Hey, Dad, you know, there's, there's no blame here. That's what's missing. There's no arrow to Dad. It's, yeah, that was dumb. <laughs> I don't know if you've ever had those moments in life. I've had a few. Yeah, that was dumb. <laughs> and that's what the Bible would call coming to your senses. All right, so he goes home. And here's where the real scandal takes place. Verse 20. So he returned home to his father. And while he was still a long way off, his father saw him coming. Now this is a man, if he's got servants, he's middle-aged, He's done well. He's got some land. He has some assets. You know, uh, and the next verse, um, while a long way off, while he was still a long way off, his father saw him coming filled with love and compassion. He ran to his son, embraced him, and kissed him. Jesus didn't need to give us those details, by the way. He could have just said, the son came home. The father said, welcome home. But what does the father do? He leaves. He runs out to his son. The father is filled with love and compassion. The father embraces him. The father kisses him. This is laden with emotion that speaks to the kind of dad that this young man has. Then you get the, the, the rehearsed speech. Father, I've sinned against heaven and you. I'm no longer worthy of being called your son. And then it gets even more scandalous, verse 22. But his father said to the servants, Quick, quick, bring the finest robe in the house and put it on him. Get a ring for his finger and sandals for his feet and kill the calf we've been fattening. We must celebrate with a feast. For this son of mine was dead and has now returned to life. He was lost, but now he's found. And so the party began. When a shepherd finds a lost sheep, it's cause for celebration. When a woman finds a lost coin, it's cause for celebration. When a father finds a lost son, it's cause for celebration. Woven into this passage is the young son was drawn home and there was repentance and he was welcomed home as a son. This is powerful, powerful stuff that's going on in this passage. And it speaks to the kind of dad that God is. How many of our dads in a scenario like this would have given the lecture, right? Well, you know, son, I told you, you weren't mature enough to handle that money. 
Well, you know, son, nobody goes to Vegas thinking they're going to somehow become a multimillionaire in nine months. Son, I mean, none of that. He's embraced and he's welcomed. I love what Charles Spurgeon says. Charles Spurgeon says this, when God is a friend, he is the best of friends. When God is a father, he is the best of fathers. Let me ask some questions of you. Do you you believe in here that God is good? I know that we say that, and I know that like the Baptists love to go, well, God is good, and then you're supposed to say, all the time, right? But do you feel it? Do you own it in here? Is it something, or are, is, it, is it for you long periods of time where on the inside you're thinking, yeah, God loves people, but maybe not me as much as he loves everybody else. Or, well, I'm just not sure I can count on God. Do you believe that God is good? Do you believe that God is for you and with you? Or do you constantly battle feelings that God's not there or that he doesn't care about you? Are you angry at God because maybe he didn't spare you or deliver you from something that was hard or arduous? So I would suggest to you that part of the all-out assault on fatherhood is a concerted effort to get as many people as possible to adopt a turn and run as far away from God's stance as, he can, as, as, as God's enemy can get. What better way to do it than to mar fatherhood so that anytime anybody hears that God is, quote, our heavenly father, they think, yeah, I know what that is. I spent myself a period of time in my 20s and 30s, and I struggled with the idea that God was for me and with me. I did. The funniest thing, I've had more hard stuff happen in my life in the last six months than I probably had ever happened in my 20s. And you know what? I'm convinced God's good. I'm convinced of it. I'm absolutely convinced of it. And I'm convinced that I can count on him. No matter what, no matter what comes my way, I can. I can count on him. I've come to see the kind of father that God is. That's what I want for you this Christmas. So... If you're a teenager, if you're a student here today, um, you're already assembling things about your mom and dad that you like, things that you don't like. You've got these categories. And I'm gonna suggest to you that when you become an adult, one of the bigger things that you'll wrestle out in adulthood is, well, who, who is God? Who is God really? What's God really like? Um, I love Jillian, the other day in ballet, caught me off guard, Jillian um, was introducing me Uh, to one of her ballet friends and she goes that's my dad I'm just like him and on the inside I was like crap (laughs) I need to set aside more money for counseling (laughs) okay she didn't mean it that way she meant you know blonde hair the whole kit and caboodle okay here's here's my bottom line and I've given you a picture that I want you to you can stick it to the steering wheel of your car You can affix this to your mirror when you're getting ready in the morning or at the corner of your computer screen. And it's really simple. Don't let pictures of your dad determine what God is like. Let God show you the kind of dad that he is. 
I would encourage you this Christmas to adopt an open stance with God. Challenge him, dare him, in a sense, with this. Hey, God, it's me. Who are you, really? What kind of dad are you? Show me who you are. Reveal to me the kind of father that you are. He delights in those kind of challenges. He'll rise to the occasion. Um, one of the ways that you can walk that out on your end is to pick a gospel. I'd pick Matthew or John. Pick one of them, and this Christmas, just start reading through the gospel with this one question. What kind, if God is father to the, to the sons and daughters that are adopted into his family, what kind of father is he, really? What can I see in how he interfaces with his son who's on the planet teaching, healing, doing these things? What do I see about God and who he is by reading these things? So that would be one, one, one homework assignment would be to mitigate out Matthew or John and just start chunking it away with that one question in mind. One of my, uh, one of my friends at Wheaton, uh, sophomore year, surprised me because we went home for Christmas break. And when we came back, um, he, he had uh, long sleeves always, all the time, which was unusual because his trademark look was to always have his sleeves rolled up, no matter what the temperature was. And so finally, I, you know, I confronted him. I was like, dude, what's going on, man? You know, why the fashion change over, the, over Christmas? Well, when he rolled up his sleeves, he had been cut. He had cut himself over Christmas, hoping that that would be it. And at the root of all of it was dad, dad and God. And in his mind, they were one and the same. And since dad was kind of a performance dad, he was convinced, I will never measure up. I will never make God happy. I will never. And so I will always be on the outs with him. And I, God, got to, uh, God got to use me, or I don't know how to put it, but we started hanging out regularly to kind of talk about that. And the neat thing to see in his life is over a decade how not only did he come to see God for who God is and the, and the, and the fact that God is good. God is good. He became a father of his own and has walked out an entirely different path than was modeled for him. And I love getting Christmas cards from him and, and hearing the things that he's doing with his own kids. And I think back to that you know, pivot point at Wheaton, and I go, I'm so glad that, in a sense, you and I got to come back home and have Dad rush out and embrace us and see God for who God really is. That's what I want for you this Christmas. And we're going to talk about the practical things over the next several weeks. So don't worry, this is more the kind of, here's where we're going. But uh, God is good, and he's a good father. I want you to see that this Christmas.